So I, uh, I went to college in, in Southern California, and uh, about three and a half hours uh, north of LA is my hometown, a little, not really a little town, kind of a unknown town called Santa Maria. And every couple of months I'd make this drive from just south of LA up to my hometown. And again, about a three and a half hour drive if you plan it right, right? I'd hop on I-5, and I take it to Highway 101, or as we call it in SoCal, the five and the 101. Um, still not used to that. Can't bring myself to call it I-95. But anyways, um, about 30 minutes or so into my drive, just before the five meets the 101, I'd come across the massive parking lot known as Los Angeles. Um, now, now, LA traffic, it's a bit of a stereotype. Um, most of the time, everything kind of just works out fine. The, the highways are built for that kind of traffic. It all kind of works out. But when things go wrong, they go really wrong. Um, uh, you know, one time I, I got stuck uh, in an, uh, traveling one mile took me one hour, right? Stuck between on-ramps, couldn't get off. I sat there feeling all five stages of grief, just frustrated. <laughs> that I, I'm going I'm to be stuck here, right? So, so often things would go wrong. You know, L.A. would get like a tenth of an inch of rain and the apocalypse would ensue. Um, and I would sit in traffic and quickly my three and a half hour drive would turn to four hours, five hours. One time I think it almost took me up to seven hours to get home. Um, just crazy. Picked the wrong time to leave. It was, it was awful. And when that would happen, I would start questioning, do I really want to go home? Do I really want to go drive this four-hour, five-hour, six-hour drive to go home? I mean, Southern California has Disneyland. I have, I have a Disneyland pass, right? I could go home, and I could wait in line for three hours to go on Space Mountain. I'm sure my mom would appreciate that excuse. Um, so I would do this. I would sit there, and I'd just get so frustrated about half hour in. Like, do I really want to do this? And I would never give up. I'd go. I love my mom too much. So I'd go, and I'd see her. Um, I've learned this about myself, is that whenever an obstacle approaches me in life, I'm tempted to think this way. I'm tempted to think, well, why don't I just give up? Why don't I just turn around? Why don't I just go and do what I was doing before? And I think this is a temptation that a lot of us face in life. And I think uh, an area that we especially feel this temptation is in our journey of faith. This certainly was Israel's problem in Exodus 17. Uh, listen to verse 3 again. It says this, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You know, this line about Egypt is something that the Israelites will bring up over and over and over again. It's almost like a stock complaint for them as they traveled with Moses out of Egypt into the promised land. This isn't even the first time in the story that they bring it up. They bring it up right before they're even technically out of Egypt. They come up to the Red Sea and they're standing on the shoreline and they think, oh my gosh, there's Pharaoh's troops right behind us. What are we going to do? They come to the shore and they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? And over and over again, Israel faces obstacle after obstacle, 
and they keep making the same complaint. Why did you take us out of Egypt? If only we could go back to Egypt. At least we had food in Egypt. And every time they make this complaint, God answers them with this miraculous demonstration of his power. He parts the Red Sea. He provides manna and quail in the wilderness. He provides walk, or water from a rock. Not just once, but twice, in fact. This complaint, it keeps coming up again and again and again. All the way until Numbers 14. When Israel is on the cusp of entering the promised land, they're staring at the border. They can see it. But they don't enter right away. They send in 12 spies to check on the land to see what it's like, to see what it's going to take to enter this this place. And 10 of the spies come back saying, there's giants in the land. We can't do it. We're too small. We're too weak. They are too mighty. And the people, they cry out in fear and they say this, would that we have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to just go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. And this becomes the last straw for God. He he can't take their complaining anymore. And, And he says none of them, in fact, are going to enter the land Instead, they're going to wander the desert for 40 years until every one of their generation dies. And then, and only then, these little ones that they were so afraid of, afraid for, will inherit the land. You know, this is the context of both the psalm we read today and also our passage in Hebrews. Over and over again throughout the Bible, you'll find references to this generation. They stand as the ultimate example of how not to be a faithful Israelite. Even Jesus himself, he uses them as an example several times. And we too were warned not to be like them, not to harden our hearts. Now, when we we use a phrase like that, harden our hearts, um, we have to be careful with it because the way you and I think about the heart is probably different than how ancient people thought about it. Now, obviously, we're not talking about just the muscle that is in your chest that pumps blood to the rest of your body. We're talking more of a metaphorical heart, right? Um, You know, for many of us, the heart, we think of emotions, we think of courage, we think of virtues. It's the seat of our emotions, right? But in the ancient world, the heart wasn't so much the seat of emotions as it was the seat of consciousness. I mean, really, the way you and I think of our brain is how the ancient people usually thought of the heart. It's it's where your decisions were made, was in your heart. So the hardening of the heart is not being emotionally closed off to God. It's the willful decision not to follow him. Some might argue that the Israelites were pushed to their limits, They were hungry, they were tired, they were frightened after traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. But Scripture argues that that wasn't exactly what was going on. It wasn't that they were just emotionally overloaded. It's that they were making a conscious decision to reject God. They saw His mighty works. They witnessed how He turned the Nile into blood. 
how he parted the Red Sea. Certainly this God has power over water. And yet they questioned whether or not he would allow them to die of thirst in the desert. Even more, they test God's hand. They stand at the border of the Holy Land and they see giants on the horizon and they have the audacity to say to God, you know, we'd rather follow someone else. We'd rather go back to Egypt. So we are warned, first by the Psalms and then by the author of Hebrews, not to harden our hearts as our ancestors did in the rebellion. The end of Psalm 95, it says, it says therefore in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest. You know, this rest, for the Israelites, it's the promised land. Israel would finally be able to rest from its long journey when they entered the promised land. This history of slavery in Egypt would be put behind them as they come into their own and they finally can rest in this land that is being given to them. But because of their disobedience, they're never permitted to enter that rest. You know, rest, it's, it's kind of had a little bit of a renaissance, I feel like, in the last couple years. Um, it's a really popular thing to talk about. Um, today you hear all sorts of things um, from Christians who have rediscovered Sabbath-keeping, or um, top athletes talk about taking uh, rest days to help grow their muscles and improve performance. You even hear about secular companies use the word sabbatical, right? Rest is in vogue. It is, it is a popular thing, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. But this isn't the sort of rest I think Hebrews and the Psalms are talking about. It's concerned uh, with something else. Right? Our, our weekly Sabbath, our rest days from the gym, our long-awaited sabbaticals, those are just a shadow of the rest that is to come. The author of Hebrews, later on in chapter 4, I encourage you to read chapter 4, he picks up on this idea of rest. And he has certainly more going on in his mind than just simply taking a break. You see, we are on a journey. We have been freed from bondage in Egypt, and we are making our way to the promised land, the land where we can finally find true rest. For the Israelites, Egypt, it stood as an alternative to God, an alternative way to rest. The promised land, it flowed with milk and honey, Honey, it was a land of abundance, but so was Egypt. Egypt had every luxury that you could imagine. The, the Egyptian empire at this point in history is at the highest might that it ever had. It had everything you could ever want. It was a cosmopolitan nation. It was full of decadence and majesty. You could have all kinds of swords of strange and exotic foods and entertainment. and Whatever you wanted going on, you could find in Egypt. Egypt promised them a period of rest after this hard journey of wandering through the desert. Except none of that is actually true. They wouldn't return to Egypt as masters. They would be slaves again. They wouldn't have access to the high culture of Egypt. They'd be in the lowest stratum of society. They wouldn't gorge themselves on exotic foods and drinks. They would subsist off slave rations. In Egypt, they would find no rest. They would only find the back-breaking forced labor of Pharaoh. But they would rather buy into some delusion that they would be masters in Egypt than be servants of the living God. 
they'd settle for a small reprieve from the desert journey than for the true rest that would await them just over that hill. You know, this is the very same issue at the heart of the story of Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, something that we often overlook in that story is that when Eve looks at that fruit, she notices that it had the ability to make one wise. That is, it can give her a wisdom apart from a wisdom she could receive from God. It was an alternative to receiving her knowledge from the Lord. So she takes it and she goes her own way. Her and Adam. She can forge her own path instead of God letting God call the shots. And the irony of both the fruit and this longing the Israelites have for Egypt is neither is really going to set them free. Neither is really going to give them what they're looking for. Egypt stood as a symbol for Israel to shake off the demands of this strange God they just met. But where were they back in Egypt? They were slaves. This fruit, it stood as a symbol for Adam and Eve to shake off the demands of this God. But what would it result in? Slavery to sin. We are faced with this very dilemma in our own lives. Do we continue down the path that God has laid out for us? Or do we shake him off and we forge our own way? Do we buy into the delusion that we somehow can become our own masters in this world? I am tempted to, uh, by the call of Egypt each and every day. You know, the witness of the New Testament, if you're paying attention to it, is that faithfully following Jesus is hard. And if we haven't experienced difficulty in staying faithful to the Lord, then either we really haven't been following him long enough to see it, or we're not as faithful as we think we are. We're not really letting it get to us. Sooner or later, if we're really following Jesus down this path, we're going to feel this pull to go back to Egypt. This urge to become our own masters, to make our own way, to give up, pack up, and go back to our lives that were before. To allow ourselves to become our own gods who decide what we do and how we live and what we live for, to find an alternative means of rest from this brutal desert environment we call life. And this is where the author of Hebrews jumps in. He says in verse 12, Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who were left who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses, but with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not he, those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that we are unable to enter because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews tells us, hold first to the confidence that we first had to the end. Don't give up. 
Don't buy into the lie of this world that there's an easier way to enter this rest. Hold to our first confidence. And what is that first confidence? It's the promise God has made to us through His Son. It's the promise of John 3.16. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is our rest. The eternal life that is brought to us through Jesus. Now Hebrews tells us that the wilderness generation weren't, wasn't able to enter this rest because of unbelief. And I think it's important for us to kind of parse this out a little bit. Um, what I don't think he means is that they had doubts about God's existence. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Belief here it can be used in the Bible in a lot of different ways, and I think here one of the best ways to understand it is trust. They don't trust God. You know, certainly Israel's problem wasn't that they didn't think God was real. Their problem was that they didn't trust his intentions. They kept accusing him of bringing them out to the desert in order that they would die from hunger and from thirst and from all these other horrible things. You know, doubt, I believe, is, is kind of part of the faith process. It's normal. And at certain times, I think it's kind of necessary for us to have these moments of doubt and we figure out what our faith really is what we really believe, what is really going on. I think having questions about God or struggling to rationalize Him in our minds, that doesn't exclude us from the kingdom of heaven. I think that's normal. I think Jesus' disciples went through that. I think instead, if you notice in Hebrews, the author, he ties unbelief closely with disobedience. The Israelites, they disobeyed God because they didn't trust Him. They made up their own minds about who he was, and they began to live in a way that was opposed to his will. They thought they knew better than him. And we face that same danger. Again, there are many of us who experience what some would call the dark night of the soul, where we doubt and we struggle and we wrestle and we try to make sense of who God is. And again, I don't think this is exactly who Hebrews has in mind. If anything, I think he would say that same thing to them Hold fast. Remember the promise that God has given you. The danger the author of, of Hebrews is thinking about is the sort that says to God, you know, you, you can do nothing for me. You, you know nothing. You cannot provide for me. And quickly, that turns into disobedience. And it says, I can do it better than you. I know better than you. I alone am the one who can provide for me. And that temptation, I think, is a really big one in our world. We live in this amazingly individualistic society where really the only rules that matter are the ones we kind of make up for ourselves. You know, in our modern world, people have moved past the worship of things like golden idols and the sun and the rains and animals. We don't worship those things anymore. But we definitely worship ourselves. Idolatry is still alive and well in this world. It just so happens that we are our own idols. We don't need God because we are our own gods. In Hebrews, he tells us to exhort each other each and every day and remind, to remind each other that this is a lie. He says, exhort each other each and every day as long as it is called today. 
so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, it sounds good at first to be able to call your own shots, to allow yourself to be your own God. You know, but what do we do when tragedy strikes? What do we do when we, who do we turn to when our own mortality comes into play? And we realize that life is finite and that we'll die one day. Who will we cry out to for justice and mercy when we find ourselves in bondage to Egypt all over again? We'll find ourselves helpless and we'll realize we're not this grand master of our own universe like we thought we were. Instead, we see we are slaves to the ways and realities of this world. And we need to remind each other daily of who we really are in our relationship to God. You know, this is the beauty of of Ash Wednesday that we observed just a few weeks ago. That from the dust we are made and the dust we will return, we are mortal, we are finite. We are definitively not God. And I need this reminder each and every day, especially in a society where we have so much. Right? We are the new Egypt. We have all the luxuries and abundance that you could ever imagine. You know, Israel, it, it failed in its test, and they were literally dependent upon God in the wilderness for food and water. He had to send manna and quail and water from rocks to provide for them. And yet they still failed in their trust of the Lord. How much easier is it for us to fail then when I don't think I've ever had a day where I'm not sure where my next meal will come from? I don't think I've ever had a moment where I opened an empty refrigerator and questioned, how am am I going to fill this back up? I've never had those thoughts. And there are certainly people in our world who do, maybe people even here who have experienced those things. There's so much temptation to rule out the necessity of God in our world. Humans, we've become really good at providing for ourselves. Really good at it. And yet this human provision is deceptive. We often forget how fragile and finite and mortal we are. We just actually witnessed a taste of that fragility firsthand over the last few years, haven't we? Just think of all the supply chain issues that were going on. You go, I worked at uh, Trader Joe's last year, and there were days where half the shelves were empty. And people thought the world was ending. It was, it was insane. Poor, um, it was just uh, mothers who couldn't breastfeed their children last year had a hard time finding formula. It's a scary reality that we're, we're facing. And, and we've begun to recover from it, and soon we'll forget all about it. That's just the way things work. But we shouldn't forget about it. We should be reminded of those things, and we should look, and we should see those. Those are cracks in the armor of our society. That for as much as humanity has become its own master, it's still very much a slave to the forces of economics, to nature, to disease, and certainly to Satan and to sin. You know, far from God being this irrelevant artifact from a distant past, he's much more relevant than ever, today, than ever before. We so badly need someone greater than us to guide our paths to give us wisdom, to show us the way to the promised land. We need to remind one another that God has a rest for us that's better than any rest this world can offer us. 
In fact, this world can offer us no rest at all. It uses us. It abuses us. It leaves us tired and wanting. So I encourage you. Exhort one another. Remind each other. Tell each other to hold fast to your first confidence that God has sent His only Son so that you may find your rest in Him. May it be so.